This is a Federal News Network podcast. Under a grant from the Labor Department, the technology trade group known as CompTIA, the Computing Technology Industry Association, has been working to establish technology apprenticeships. The general aim is to help fill workforce gaps in both government and industry. For details, we turn to CompTIA's Senior Vice President for Workforce Relations, Amy Cardell. Ms. Cardell, good to have you on. Good to be with you, Tom. Tell us what you're doing here. IT workforce, is that beyond simply cybersecurity? Because everybody's chasing the cybersecurity workforce. It sure is. So computer careers obviously are quality jobs. And as a trade association for the IT industry, we're really excited to have a contract with the U.S. Department of Labor with a partner, American Institutes of Research, to expand tech apprenticeships across the U.S. What is a tech apprenticeship versus an internship versus just an entry-level wire puller? You're so right to ask that question. An apprenticeship is an entry-level trainee job. It has three components. You have a mentor showing you how to do things. Some things are best learned by doing, including cyber and IT. You have a classroom instruction component, and you have a learn-by-doing work experience. So that three-legged stool makes it an apprenticeship. It's a job, but it's a trainee job. And this changes the mindset of tech employers from being people who buy talent, poach it from other employers, to people who train talent. And that's really our big goal here is to make the pipeline bigger into entry-level tech jobs. All right. So you're CompTIA. You have member companies and they have needs. How does this all work functionally? We address the needs of our members and have the certifications to go with that. The A-plus certification, network certification, network plus and security plus are those training certifications that people work through to prove their competencies in these apprenticeships in our industry. So our member companies are hungry to hire. We publish a report And it's no secret that shows the gap of supply and demand in these key industries. And we're trying to meet that gap with quality jobs that pay well and have upward mobility. All right. And are the jobs you mentioned cyber? I heard network. But is it also, can it be software design, systems design? Each occupation has a specific apprenticeship. We've published four. We have IT support generalists. So that's your help desk role. And that is a stepping stone to other pathways. That's really the entry-level pathway. From there, you could take it into networking. That's another pathway we have with an apprenticeship or into cyber. And the other pathway we have is in technical project management. And that's one where people, I think, have the biggest door open to them. A lot of folks say, oh, um, I can do project management, but if I can do it in tech, that's uh, something I can build on. This grant to do this is from the Labor Department. What are they paying for exactly? Yes. So what we're being paid for is to go out and socialize this idea, stand up these national guideline standards that are for these four occupations I just outlined, networking, cyber, IT support generalist, and project management, and then bring those with consulting to the companies to set up these apprenticeships because it's a new idea for them. And to register an apprenticeship with Department of Labor is a piece of paperwork that AIR takes care of, our partner on this project. And is there any sense of the numbers in demand? I mean, you hear all kinds of crazy numbers for how many cybersecurity people are needed, a million, two million, I don't know. But for IT support, networking, and say tech project management, is there any quantification of the, of the gap in the workforce? Yes. We look at these numbers specifically because we pull that data directly from Burning Glass, Labor Insights. We can see that in 2020, there are 185,500 job postings for IT project manager. That's the second most in-demand job behind the IT support generalist with 263,000 jobs opened in um, 2020. But overall, those are kind of relative numbers that are hard to get our handle on. But I would say the key finding is there are in 2021 projected to be 31% growth rate 
All right, so a couple of hundred, three, four hundred thousand jobs might be at stake here then. Yes. When we say big numbers, it's real. The net tech employment already in the U.S. is 12 million roughly for 2021, and we're projecting 250,000 more jobs roughly coming into this year. We're speaking with Amy Cardell. She's Senior Vice President for Workforce Relations at CompTIA. What is the sell to companies that might have a need and you come at them with the possibility of an apprentice and they need someone that can hit the ground running right now? So how do you how do you sell the apprenticeship idea to organizations that have those gaps? Well, when the gap is so big and the supply is so limited, we have to come up with new ways to meet it. Just standing up an apprenticeship isn't going to find you an entirely new pipeline. But it is a new training tool, and especially as we look to do things with equity and find people to enter the workforce that haven't had that opportunity before, we can format a new build-your-own-talent strategy that increases retention and has good ROI. Do we know the extent to which these jobs might be union jobs? Because that's a big priority of the current administration. It's not always the case, but that's what they're looking at now. And are these, say, Communication Workers of America or IAM? or In our industry, for these roles, there's not a union role played. So that's why we're stepping as a trade association, because we go across companies and we reach into different sectors where we're standing these up. You'll see that these are jobs that could be in government. These are jobs that could be in the private sector. But traditionally, our industry is not unionized. And that's where a trade association plays a bigger role, Tom. All right. And uh, yes, I was going to ask, too, what about federal agencies? Can they avail themselves of this program and get some some apprentices in? We'd love to see that. Last year, I was part of a working group at the National Science Foundation, and we wrote a white paper just on that topic because there's a real dearth of apprenticeship programs in the federal space around cyber. So we'd love to see that happen, too. Where do you get the raw material? Because people have to step up to want to be apprentices. And you can see where the technical trade schools have mostly disappeared that used to do that. ITT technical and so forth went away and kind of because of the labor department in many ways and the education department. But nevertheless, that's the situation we have. So where do apprentices come from in general? They can come from community colleges. We have programs that are partnering with community colleges to get that real workforce work-based learning early in their career. We also see partnerships with community-based organizations that are looking to do reskilling and upskilling uh, programs. So many people have been displaced, of course, in the, the pandemic that we have um, a lot of service workers that are considering what is a pandemic-proof job? And this is a very timely on-ramp to a tech career that is pandemic-proof and leads to a quality job that can happen through this training investment of the employer into that worker. So we see a couple of different ways people can get there. And our real goal as part of the contract is to have more than 50% diversity in this. So non-traditional technologists getting into technology has been a goal of our association for a long time. We really want to unlock people's potential and see more women and people of color in tech. And these jobs don't necessarily require a college degree, really. I mean, they are trades. There's a lot of technical information you have to have and things you can learn, but you don't have to necessarily have read Chaucer to be able to do this. Right. These are not jobs that require a four-year degree. We like to say you might get that later. Uh, and the employer might pay for it, but it doesn't, it's not a prerequisite for sure. And if you have one, maybe in Chaucer, maybe you need a job. So this is a great way to add some skills to pay the bills on top of that degree that maybe isn't paying the bills. And you can write the poetry after paying the bills and still be a poet and a wire puller or a network designer, I suppose. Right, I shouldn't say right. wire puller. It's much more than that. Or have you placed many? What is the duration of this program? So we are in our second year, just started our second year of a contract, standing up a new program. And it's national, as I said. So we have hot spots in the cities of Phoenix, Oklahoma City, Northern and Southern California, and in the D.C. area. And so we have over 600 commitments from employers to place. 
apprentices. And we're in the process of doing that with training through different entities and different companies. So during the pandemic, it's certainly been harder to get those those job slots to open up, but we're, we're right on the verge of having a big onslaught of hires happen. And have you been tracking the apprentices that are hired to see that they get through the program and become just regular old IT employees? That's a deliverable, exactly. We have our second cohort in in class now, we have the first one in jobs, and we have 83% diversity that we're really proud of. And that um, first cohorts are going through in the Phoenix area. And I got to see them in person two weeks ago. And it was really nice to see the theoretical work that we're doing, uh, you know, behind the scenes and all remote, of course, during the pandemic um, on the ground and see those smiling faces in the classroom training. Amy Cardell is Senior Vice President for Workforce Relations at CompTIA. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it's my pleasure to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do 
Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about. As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.